welcome to the Love on the Go podcast, brought to you by Carolina's Matchmaker. I'm Lori Burzak, and for over 17 years, I've been helping singles find the relationship of their dreams all over the Carolinas. Along the journey, I've met so many amazing professionals and experts from various fields, and I'm excited to introduce them to you. What's my goal? I want to help you look at love and relationships in a new way and to grow in your understanding of how love works. Let's learn together how people have overcome personal obstacles and have found love, first and foremost, with themselves. The ultimate goal is realizing that you are worthy and deserving of love. Let's get started. Matthew Frey, Matt, is a relationship coach and author who leans on the lessons of his failed marriage and divorce to help others avoid making the same mistakes that he did. And his book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends, went on sale in March of 2022. And he's appeared in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and the Atlantic, blah, 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 on and on, several other places. Welcome, Matt. I want to tell you kind of how I found you is I was was at lunch with a dear friend and she told me that she she read your blog and then she read your book and then it it really resonated with her and she kind of realized that her marriage wasn't working and and finally the reasons why and i think it really helped her be able to kind of step out of her marriage even though she'd done like all this work on it i think it allowed her to be able to release it and obviously it's not what we want everyone to do but i wanted you to i wanted to tell you that <laughs> no it's true first thank you so much yeah. for having me second yeah. yeah i do i cringe at those stories because at the core right of my like motivation to do this my desire to do this is this notion of wanting people to be able to like keep their families together yeah but then when i like dig just like an extra layer further Mm. what i really want is for people to be their best healthiest selves yeah and and the only way a relationship in my estimation can be great and sustaining and full of trust and intimacy and all the things required for families and relationships to make it is for two people like that to be in some level of like individual health and some level of like relational health with one another and so if she identified sort of bad unhealthy toxic things Mm -hmm. and then left you know I, i don't want on my resume to be and like you know, Matt's work helped like, you know, a bunch of people leave their relationships, but at the same time, right. It's like really all about framing. It's yeah. If people are choosing themselves and, and exiting fundamentally unhealthy relationships, which I'd like to add, I believe so strongly. That's what my ex-wife did. What my son's mother did. Mm. She, she exited a fundamentally unhealthy relationship. She mm-hmm. calculated was beyond saving. Mm-hmm. And I, I truly, the day, the day, I arrived at that conclusion is the day like I sufficiently healed from, mm. you know what I mean? Like the, the ugly, dark, painful part of, of that happening. That, that was like the final leg of that journey was saying she did the right thing like, in the context of being her. Yeah. That's critical to think about. It, it really is. And what I, I want to tell you that your book really helped me view what leads people to divorce in a very different way. And then my hope is that people will listen to this podcast and learn how to save their current or future marriages or partnerships and to avoid divorce. And we'll, and we're going to get to that, but let's start with your story. Can you give some background for those listening on your marriage? It's failure to thrive in the start of your blogging and ultimately your book. Yeah, I well, I think the, from the outside looking in, my marriage looked just about like everybody's, at least like mm-hmm. within my age range. I'm 43 today. We were 
we were 25 when we were married. Um, and, you know, we were, we were married for, for about nine years and together for 12 plus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just two people who met in college and got together after. It's a pretty common story where I come from. Mm-hmm. And it, it was fine. It looked fine. Everybody seemed to get along well. We had the same, generally speaking, shared values and same friends, at least mm-hmm. in the way we thought about values in our 20s. Right. And we only thought about things I calculated back then to be minor and significant things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Stuff that's no big deal. Things that you can sweep under the rug, go to sleep, and everything will be cool the next day. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I don't know. I, I it, it, There was nothing particularly noteworthy or spectacular about it. Um, my marriage ended on April 1st, 2013, not in a legal sense, but in a literal, she moved out sense. Mm-hmm. And that's when like life got really hard. And so I was, I was 33 years old, just turned. And I felt like so much of my life had been wasted. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I'd lost so much time. And back then I thought she quit, right? I thought she was a person doing the bad thing to me. And like giving up on us. I wasn't, I didn't believe I was like an amazing like relationship partner necessarily, but I didn't believe I was like bad enough to leave. Right. I thought, right. I thought it was like her breaking promises um, about, about commitments and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I really had to like do the work of understanding. I needed to know whatever it was that I had the ability to control, whether that was partner selection or mm-hmm. whether that was how I behaved within a relationship. I had to understand what my contributions were to protect myself. This is started out as an incredibly selfish exercise to protect okay. myself from having this happen again. Like this was the darkest, ugliest, most painful thing I've ever known. This can't happen again. I need, and I, I wanted to protect my little boy from having a repeat scenario where he gets I, to know people and loves them. And then, and then he loses them too, right? Three, how five, old was six, he nine years when later, you, four. yeah. Okay. It's four. Okay. Four, almost five. Okay. And it was so important to me, right. That I not like put him through something like that again. So whatever mm-hmm. I could do to help. And anyway, in that sort of blogging, reading, thinking, conversing with other people journey that took place over the following, I don't know. I don't know if we can, we can find a, a tipping point where like, I suddenly felt like I understood something. It was a very slow process right. of gradually i would i would frankly describe it as eliminating eliminating blind spots or gaining small insights and the collective of eliminating blind spots meaning things things i was doing in my relationship that i calculated to be harmless at the time but right. now understand to be fundamentally harmful to relationship trust and intimacy i was doing things like that that i think many many people do in their relationships and, and my work today is truly about this idea of like eliminating blind spots. And then just, yeah, a series of like insights that were really rooted, I think, in empathy and rooted in what, um, what is commonly correlated to um, relationships falling apart. Um, a, a big, a huge one, for example, being like shared domestic responsibility, parenting, okay. house cleaning, yep. things like that, right? That is so often at the epicenter of conflict and relationships right. and people... I think don't necessarily on average, I'm speaking of broad generalities here, don't right. calculate that to be like, hey, let's end our marriage because we have a debate about 
you know, well, as you know from my work, a dish by the right. sink. Right. Like, right. That's sort of like the famous entry point, like at least in my world. And when I say right. famous, that's air quotes. That's like relativism. Um, you know, I, I wrote an article called She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink. And yeah, you had millions of views on that. Far and away the most popular yep. thing I've read. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And and that was back in 2016. Right. And it was so like significant in my world that I had to include it as like a subchapter in the book. Right. Um describe so, it a little bit, that blog and why okay. it went so viral. Okay. And so and then, and then piggybacking on what we we're just yeah. talking about. Yeah. Like this this was perhaps the single most critical insight I believe mm -hmm. I've discovered about right. relationships. Um, this was like your big aha moment for, for me. Yeah. For what's you. So interesting is I, I'm still not doing an amazing job of writing it. I don't think, or, or back then in 2016, because so many people still want to have a debate about whether somebody should or should not be able to leave a dish by the sink in their relationship and in their individual households. But right back then, what it was, was I, and I still do this by the way, today, I leave a drinking glass by my kitchen sink Right. It's for like vitamins and medicines and things like that in the morning that I just take like daily supplements and whatever. And it, it just bothered her. Right. Yeah. And she kept like the house. Like, it was a, one of her personal values was like a tidy, clean home. And right. It mm -hmm. had slightly different standards and we'd have a debate about like whose feelings mattered more was essentially mm -hmm. what it came down to. I like wanted to fight for my preference to leave the glass there. Because mm -hmm. I didn't think I didn't I didn't perceive it to be a very big deal. Right. She did perceive it to be a big deal. And I think tons of people in the world are allowed to have an intellectual debate about about the relative fairness of that. And that's fine. People can mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. But the work that I did following my marriage ending led me to the following conclusion. And this is piggybacks off of 17 million other incidents virtually identical to this dish by the sink. Right. right. It was just something else. Mm -hmm. It was in the relationship. But what I had, the way I talk about it today is the dish by the sink was a piece of evidence that my wife discovered when she would walk into the kitchen. And mm -hmm. it reminded her that she's married to somebody who will always choose what he thinks and what he feels and what he wants over her. Mm -hmm. And that manifested in so many different little life scenarios that we will likely get into on some level mm -hmm. and the, that to me is sort of like the math result that people discover in their relationships i'm with somebody who will always choose themselves and their wants over mine mm -hmm. and in no amount of like trying to recruit them to help me or you know please for like for help or like mitigating the problem or changing mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. no amount does me any good I've been doing this for years, having the same conversation, asking for the same sort of help for years. I do not get it. I can't be in this relationship anymore. Right. Some people may think that that's really ridiculous and petty. And I used to think that, and now I don't because I think I see it for what it is. I think I see it in the way people feel it when they're on the, the victim side of that today. This, the side of being invisible, being small, not mattering enough to the person who promised to love them forever. Right. And that's what I wanted to talk about. People are going into marriages so filled with hope and love, and they'd never in a million years think that they would get a divorce. And then, however, as we know, over half of all marriages fail. And you wrote, the real tragedy is I don't think most people are mindful of how their behavior adversely affects the relationship. 
Yeah. And that's what you're talking about. <clears throat> I equated it. That, mm -hmm. I equated it in the book to the people who used to smoke, like in the 1950s, mm -hmm. before it was common knowledge that it was bad for you. Yeah. And I know that may be like difficult for like young people to like think about today. Mm -hmm. There really was a time, and hopefully people have seen it on TV shows or something like Mad Men or something where like everybody smoked. Right. And it was literally not known that it was a health risk mm -hmm. back during when this was happening. It was just everybody did it. Mm -hmm. in their cars, driving around with their babies in the back seat, mm -hmm. with, you know, the windows rolled up. Um, it's so dangerous to me, the idea that people will do things and not fundamentally understand the risks attached to it. That to me is so much more dangerous than people who take a calculated risk. They're like, I know that this isn't great for me, but I'm choosing it anyway. Fine. Be an adult, do what you got to do. But I, I'm, I think it's terrifying when people don't even know like what to worry about. Like that's the scariest of like dangerous scenarios. And I think relationships, romantic relationships, marriage specifically is, is, is one that presents some of the highest stakes in our lives. Like the stakes are really high for people who value their family mm -hmm. and, and their relationship, like sticking together. Right. And I don't mean right after, I don't mean like a breakup after being together six months. I mean, like trying to untangle 15 to 35 years together, which yeah. is a really common range in my world with the people that I encounter, the clients that come to me in my coaching room today. Right. So. Right. And your go-to defense in your marriage was to say that you didn't do it on purpose and that you learned that that didn't really help and that your wife just eventually just kind of checked out because she couldn't depend on you and her trust was gone. Let's talk about trust. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So my entire yeah. marriage, defending myself on the merits that I was a good right. person with good intentions. Right. And then your wife stops trusting you because she doesn't feel safe anymore. You know, that's exactly right. The, the thing that I, I, I frequently go to and talk about and in this particular conversation is mm -hmm. um, foundationally one of two ideas I focus on with co clients in my coaching work. And it is, I, I describe them as habits in my work because I think habits is such a useful way to think about our behavior. Um, I don't think bad people doing bad things is at the root of the marriage epidemic in this country, in this world. Mm -hmm. I think that good people not knowing that things they do hurt, fundamentally hurt another person and or just the foundation of their relationship is at the epicenter of the like marriage divorce epidemic in this country and world. And one of the things I think that we do on autopilot, and, and we're so unaware that it causes the harm that it caused. Mm -hmm. And if we're picking on people, it's more often, I believe, observably true, men doing this to their female romantic partners and heterosexual relationships, I believe is the most sort of common like place to find this behavior. And it is, it is just this serial invalidation we have it have excuse me the serial invalidation mm -hmm. habit we have mm -hmm. when we disagree with our relationship partner mm -hmm. and there mm -hmm. are three specific ways i believe that this shows up in relationships and the way that it looked like in mine was my wife would come to me to try to tell me that something was wrong that something bad had happened and it might be something that you and i perceive to be pretty minor like a dish by the sink or it might be something like really awful like uh she found out her aunt got a you know like a terminal illness diagnosis or something you know what i mean it can a wide range of bad things happen to people. And mm -hmm. she would tell me about it. And whatever she said 
I would disagree with the story she just told me, meaning I would disagree that she was accurately describing what had actually happened. Hmm. Version one of this invalidation triple threat, as I call it, is I reframe or challenge or correct the intellectual experience my relationship partners have. And the math result of that exchange with somebody, when you're like, hey, that's not even what happened. Here's what happened. When Mm -hmm. that happens, the math result is your feelings don't matter. The actual bad thing that you're feeling right now is not relevant to me because it's based on something that isn't even true, Hmm. right? Like it it didn't even happen, as you said, so your feelings are totally illegitimate. Mm -hmm. Version two of this, my wife would come to me and she'd say, hey, Matt, bad thing happened. I feel bad about it. And this time I completely understand like intellectually what she's sharing with me. I don't challenge any aspect of her recollection or whatever she just observed. This time, though, I'm highly confused about how she feels about it. I'm I, like, her feelings are a little too big for this relatively small thing in my estimation. And so I'm like, sure, that's what happened. But why are you making such a big deal out of it? Like, mm-hmm. that's not very important. Like, maybe we don't need to give that so much power and energy. Um, version two, right? Your, your, ma- your, your feelings don't matter because, because your emotional calibration is wrong, because you're being dramatic, because you're, you're being weak, because you're mm-hmm. being hypersensitive. Version three is my wife comes to me and she says, hey, Matt, you did something or you didn't do something and it it hurt me. Mm -hmm. And then I simply like put my hands up. I'm like, wait a minute, let me explain. Let me defend myself or let me justify why I did what I did. Because if you understand like what I was thinking at the time and what I was attempting to do, you won't be mad at me anymore. Problem solved. These are the three ways I think when we sort of are like, not in alignment or in agreement that something went down the way it was or that we should feel about it the way that we that it was that a person commonly routinely responds to their relationship partner and i just want people to recognize this habit in their own lives Mm -hmm. and i want them to recognize what 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 the totality of that habit of that repeating over many months and years uh, does what it does is something i'd already said about that dish by the sink my wife learned that if Matt didn't approve of her thoughts and her feelings, that I would always, that I would imply that she was wrong or that she was stupid or that she was crazy or that she was weak or that she was being too sensitive or regardless of whether I was challenging something intellectually or emotionally, I would defend myself or justify my actions, implying that I would make the same decision again tomorrow, even though she just got done saying it hurt her. And so Mm -hmm. what that human like concludes over time is I'm married to somebody who has to rubber stamp approve my thoughts and my feelings in order for Mm -hmm. me to feel loved and cared for and seen and respected by them. And if any aspect of what I'm experiencing right now doesn't pass his sniff test, he implies a bunch of negative things about me and promises he's just going to keep doing the same things over and over again anyway. And I just think that's sort of, I don't want to say it's okay. I don't mean it's like, it's okay. I think it's really bad, but I think any isolated incident or seven or even 25 is pretty okay. It's not going to, it's not going to shatter your relationship, but I think when that is routinely how we're showing up in terms of our sort of like relational communication over the life of, and however long that is five Mm -hmm. years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, the person on the, I'm being invalidated end of it if they have a healthy sense of respect, self-love, things like that, I, I think they will eventually choose to walk away from somebody who repeatedly dishonors their experience because 
just because I don't, I don't think what you think and I don't feel what you feel. Therefore, I'm not going to treat whatever bad things going on in your world with any amount of love, care, and respect. I just doesn't matter to me unless it matters to me, right? Like, unless right. I feel it too, sorry, you know, your feelings are your problem. That, that's, I didn't say things like that. I right. just think that's the math result of, of what people experience when we're like, hey, you've got that wrong. You shouldn't think that. You shouldn't feel that. Um, and we, we do it all the time. Do you think that when, as a matchmaker, people come to me all the time, they say, yeah, we just kind of grew apart. And I'm always like, how do people grow apart? Do you think that this, what you're talking about is how that possibly, how that happens? Absolutely. Yeah. In, in conjunction with the second half mm-hmm. of my coaching work, the other habit, which, which is the dish by the sink. Mm-hmm. It's this, it's this absence of consideration for someone else's experience. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, you hear it all the time with like the, the classic toilet seat being up or down argument. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I had, and, and I said it the way that I said it in an interview once where I was like proud of it. Cause I was like, it was like a television interview. And there was a guy there that left the toilet seat up and he mm-hmm. really fought about it with his wife. Same as I did about the dish. And I wanted him to get it. I'm like, listen, I'm like, your wife doesn't want you to put the seat down because she's incapable of putting the seat down. Like I'm with you intellectually, sir. That's not a big deal. And she's not like giving you a hard time about it. Like you're doing something really bad. That's not what this is. This isn't you're a bad person doing a bad thing because Mm -hmm. you leave the toilet seat up. Nobody is saying that. Although I understand that's what you're interpreting it as. What your wife is saying is when she walks into the bathroom, it would be really nice to find evidence that she wasn't invisible to you. Because the toilet seat up communicates one of two ideas. I know she would prefer it down and I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. Because it doesn't matter. Mm. Or or it communicates, I didn't think about you at all. Right. You are so insignificant and unimportant to me that it never even occurred to me to do this on behalf of you. It's always like those are the two conclusions a person can come to. Either I'm with somebody who knows my wants and needs and does Mm -hmm. whatever they want anyway, Mm -hmm. my feelings be damned, Mm -hmm. or they don't think about me at all. That's what happens when we do not mindfully, intentionally consider our relationship partners in our sort of ever-present decision-making process as life's happening. And I, I just think those are the two really significant blind spots people have. We fail to consider... And then, so some accident happens, right? Somebody Mm -hmm. feels hurt because of something we didn't even pay attention to. And so we raise our hands in innocence, like, hey, sorry, like had no idea. And maybe maybe that's fine in the first six months of your relationship and the the first two years even maybe. But when people are together 20 years and we fail to anticipate someone else's needs, that's that's the conclusion they arrive at. After two decades, this person either doesn't want any part of knowing me and honoring the things that matter to me, or he or she's so busy not caring at all in the first place that I'm just like, they're just oblivious about it. I'm, I'm invisible to that. Either way, I don't feel safe in the context of this relationship being having the ingredients necessary to like last a lifetime, or more importantly, a place that I want to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, sure. People can sort of like swallow all of that and like tough it out. 
for the last 30 years of their lives if they feel like it, but a lot of healthy people choose not to. And that's what I was applauding early in our conversation. My son's mother's decision to embrace yeah. the rest of her life and say, I'm not going to spend the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life subjecting myself mm -hmm. to the opinions and the feelings of another person who refuses to honor mine. And perhaps that's what your friend sort of concluded as well. This yeah. idea that I love myself and respect myself entirely too much to volunteerly do this thing that's been hurting me for years, to continue right. to do that for the rest of my life mm -hmm. feels like masochism. And I get that. Totally. I, I, this whole idea of just living consciously and really always thinking about your partner is such a, a, a new idea for, for a lot of people. And it's like, they have to be retrained. They need to learn about this. I, I really applaud the work that you're doing, um, really putting this out there. And um, do you think that it's possible for long-term marriages? And what have you seen in your coaching? Like, how do people start living consciously? Are there some exercises you do with people? Like, how do you, how do you start changing you know, your brain? Well, I mean, it's really hard. I, it's mm -hmm. really hard. And, and mm -hmm. I have like an ADHD issue, which um, my wife and I didn't know about when we were mm -hmm. married. Uh, we mm -hmm. learned sort of after the fact. Um, and, you know, I think that even she has like some empathy around like that, understanding mm -hmm. it today because our son is, you know, has my genetics mm -hmm. and he's so much like me, it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. But, um, but you know, like she loves him to pieces and like gets it, I think, with him now mm -hmm. in a way that she can like relate to like old me. Um, but she also sees me in real time, like doing the work of trying to be mm -hmm. considerate. Because even when you're divorced and you share a child with somebody, you have to be considerate, usually yeah. in terms of like calendars and like schedules and timing that tends to be where that lives. Yeah. But I am very, very mindful of how what I do or what I don't do or mm -hmm. timing may or may not impact her. And my communication about it's pretty darn solid. And a lot of trust has been restored because she sees me actively doing it. But I have a couple little anecdotes from my personal life about yeah. this idea that I hope people can apply to their own lives. Um, the first would be, I date somebody that's got a severe gluten like condition, like mm -hmm. goes, goes, like has a really bad time. If, okay. You know, yeah. if like the yeah. gluten thing happens. Yeah, yeah. And so, but there's plenty of gluten consumed in my household, right? Between my son right. and I. And so what that tends to look like is if she's coming over, I will like sanitize all of the surfaces in the house that I think it's likely she might come into contact with things like the kitchen counter and the doorknobs mm -hmm. and uh, cabinet handles and even nice. like the faucet handles, things like that. And then, you know, if we were to go to a restaurant or if we were to go to like another friend's house for dinner or something, mm -hmm. She sees me like thinking about gluten-free mm. options on menus before we go to said restaurant. She mm -hmm. knows when we arrive at like a dinner place, like, a, excuse me, like a dinner party at a friend's house, and they've got three or four gluten-free options for her that I did the work of like communicating mm -hmm. on her behalf, right? Like she feels constantly as if I'm somebody that's sort of like vigilantly advocating for and protecting her from this thing that doesn't affect me, but does affect her. Yeah. And I know that is a little bit more tangible than mm -hmm. emotional experiences, mm -hmm. but it's the one that I often share with my clients because mm -hmm. I think that they get that, you know, if they conceptually understand that she gets really sick from gluten and that it's a relatively microscopic and visible thing. And that, I mean, like to the point where I can't like 
eat a slice of pizza or a sandwich, grab a glass, take mm-hmm. a drink of it, hand it to her. And then mm. she grabs that same glass. Like that absolutely threatens her like health wise. Wow. And I just have to be mindful of that all the time. And yeah, I, th- that has manifested right in my personal life that way. I think it's, I, I trust people to pull from that, the mindfulness lesson of what it would look like to understand what emotional experiences their relationship partner has that hurt them that don't necessarily hurt the other person, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I'm not hurt by that. So it's not on my radar. Well, what if we make it intentionally on our radar because it hurts them? And right. I understand forgetting, I do. I understand forgetting, but, but like part of the trust building process in a relationship is, is not allowing our partners to hurt because of things we're too comfortable to not pay attention to, mm-hmm. which was the story of my relationship, by the way. I was just always too comfortable to adjust mm. anything I was doing. I kept waiting for her to interpret me differently instead of me accepting any responsibility for adjusting what I do so that she didn't have the negative emotional experience in the first place. Right. So anyway, that was the work. But the other thing is this little focus wristband on my wrist, which I, I wrote about in the book and I still wear, mm. yeah. um, even though I don't really need it anymore. Um, but I, it's just sentimental at this point. But right. I tell the story in the book of how I used to like have to fight with my son when he was young, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old um, to like tie his shoes on and uh, get ready to go to like to go to school in the morning. You know, I was like bumbling single dad trying to like get ready for work and trying to get him ready for school and do all the things. And I'd get so frustrated with him when he'd be like goofing off and like not cooperating. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'd like raise my voice mm-hmm. and then he'd be really upset. I mean, it didn't happen a million times, but it happened too many for me to like. And a few times I dropped him off at school and he's like on the verge of tears. Oh. And a couple of times it was like a Friday morning and I wasn't going to see him again until like Monday evening because the oh. way the shared parenting calendar works. I'm like, oh, and I'm like, what if I get like nailed at an intersection on my drive to the office and we never speak again. And his final memory of his father is that dad doesn't think I'm good enough. Dad oh. thinks I'm too slow. Dad doesn't like the way that I do things. And he's always like giving me a hard time about it. And I just was I could not have that. I mm-hmm. could not have my son believing that his father didn't approve of him, didn't think he was good enough, always was finding something to like pick on him about. That was not what I was doing, but I understand fundamentally that that was his like emotional experience with it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to stop this. I'm like, there's a better way to like parent my son. And mm-hmm. so I got this little like wristband as like a visual cue to when I feel like my emotional temperature rising to choose like, the quality of my relationship with him over my petulant instinct to like, you know, like speak crossly and harshly to him. And so like, you know, I learned to like pick him up and set him on the kitchen counter and like eye level talk to him and hug him and say, boy, I'm, I just, I really want us to get to school and to work on time. This is not about me trying to convince you you're not good enough. It's, Mm -hmm. It, and then, you know, I don't know, all the little dad things that dads say to their kids, it, it just, it worked so much better than like giving him a hard time, you know, essentially, essentially yelling at him and like yell, but like, I've been a kid before yeah. you, 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 you perceive it as being yelled at and it feels right. bad. Yeah. And we don't like it. And we take that into our adult relationships and we don't like being yelled at by them either. I but basically it's just negative feedback. We don't like. Exactly. If there's someone listening right now that's kind of in the throes of disconnect and lack of trust, what are three simple ways to get back on track? 
to me, the low hanging fruit is if you were somebody who recognizes that you're an invalidator, that you, not, not that you're attempting to invalidate, nobody's okay. trying to, it's that it might be the inadvertent math result of disagreeing with your relationship partner. And like, I just think being mindful of that and developing mm-hmm. a more nuanced conversation and what that might look like is my wife tells me in this hypothetical example that she had a really bad day at work because mm-hmm. she had like an encounter with like her, her work rival mm-hmm. and, you know, like it was really bad. And what I would maybe used to do is be like, why don't you just get out of there? Or why don't right. you like report what she or he's doing to like your boss? And, you know, just something I was right. was trying to like fix it or whatever, which is, you know, I think as you know, like not awesome for relationships. She did not tell me about this because she was seeking my wise man counsel. She right. just wanted like a human being to like mm-hmm. understand like what she'd been through that day. And right. I wish instead of like evaluating what she was telling me as being something she should do, she should feel differently about or, or react to differently. Mm-hmm. I wish I just said, I'm really sorry that on top of everything that you're already stressed about at work, they have to deal with that too. Like that is what validating someone else's emotional experience looks like Mm -hmm. even when you might think or feel or do something different in an identical situation as them and there is potent power in doing that in the context of like intimacy and connection um and 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 i think to that end number Mm -hmm. two Mm -hmm. we have it's piggybacking off of the same idea Mm -hmm. we we get in these like little mini micro conflicts because of conversations like this all the time And many, many people, if they're like me and they have like sort of conflict avoidant personalities, like naturally they run away, right? We're just going to go like blow off steam and go somewhere else, Mm -hmm. be apart. And so often repair doesn't happen. Mm. Like that scenario, like I just want to sleep on it, right? And everything will be fine the next day because that was so not a big deal. Mm -hmm. I want people to learn how to embrace repair of like, a broken thing. So mm-hmm. Terry Real, longtime marital therapist, taught me and many other people this idea that relationships are in a constant state of one of three cycles, harmony, disharmony, and then the repair process to mm-hmm. go from disharmony to re- nothing grows, nothing manifests trust mm-hmm. as much as repairing like a little negative incident. Mm-hmm. Of course, nobody did anything on purpose. It's Mm -hmm. not about apologizing and being a martyr for this horrible thing somebody did Mm -hmm. because horrible people aren't doing horrible things most of the time. If you are a good person that's well-intentioned, but something you did inadvertently caused pain for someone else, repair that. Like, say, I understand why that hurt you. I hope that you trust that moving forward, I'm going to try to be more mindful of that. I don't want that to happen to you again because I'm too busy not paying attention. I wish I'd learned how to say things like that. And that repairs rather than the people that defend themselves, like, what are you talking about? Stop making such a big deal out of it. And mm-hmm. you never repair. And then trust slowly erodes over your relationship. But if we succeed at repairing, if we lean into the discomfort of the mm-hmm. repair process with somebody else, mm-hmm. trust grows. And that I think gives us a huge, huge like advantage over most people that just are, are, are avoidant. Even if they don't mean to be, one person tends to maybe not be avoidant. Mm-hmm. And then the other person is, but the same result still happens. And usually the person that is avoidant is the person that'll get left because, because they never engage in any sort of like humble acknowledgement that they've done something or not done something that resulted in harm to the other person. 
Um, it, it, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's necessarily like a third obvious thing for me because those are two very good answers. It's, it's I, I would I would probably piggyback on that even a step further. I tell this story in my work and I tell it in the book that you read. Thank you so much for reading it, by the way. I'm so loved it. about that monster under the bed scenario, right? Where I'm hypothetically a dad goes into a room, finds a child terrified of a monster under the bed that I know isn't there. Mm-hmm. And right, this is an exercise, this is a thought exercise in validating somebody else. I know a monster's not there. So I know he shouldn't feel afraid. He shouldn't be crying because the reason he's afraid and crying isn't real to begin with. Mm-hmm. And if I like say something like, dude, there isn't a monster under the bed, you know, stop like overreacting, go to sleep, everything's fine. And I leave that room as that young child's father. It doesn't mean I- I'm-, I'm right about it. There's no monster. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean I don't love them. I love them intensely. And it doesn't mean I'm trying to hurt them. Mm-hmm. But what the- what's the math result? The-, the child's still afraid, crying in the dark and mm-hmm. just learned that if I call my parent to try to help me with this thing I'm afraid of, and my parent doesn't think that this should matter, like they imply that I'm wrong, that I'm stupid, that I'm weak, that I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. And then they literally or metaphorically abandon me to cry alone in the dark. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's another way to do that. And the way I would do it today is I run upstairs because I hear my son freaking out because he's afraid of a monster hiding under the bed. And instead of like rendering judgment on his experiences and his feelings about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sit down on the edge of the bed. I'm going to hug him out and be like, but I don't think there's a monster under the bed, but I've been afraid before. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry that that's what you're dealing with right now. And being afraid is really, really hard. Let's mm-hmm. turn the light on. Let's look under the bed. Let's make sure there's a monster there. But here's the third thing. I want to always communicate this idea to the people I love always, mm-hmm. because it's what the opposite of what I used to do. It is, I would hypothetically be saying this to my son. Um, I always want you to know that you can call mom, you can call dad when something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Even if we can't fix what's wrong, even if we mm-hmm. can't fight your battle for you, you never have to feel alone. You never have to feel like you're the only person dealing with whatever awful thing you're dealing with. Whether mm-hmm. it's something minor, like a monster <laughs> under the bed, or whether it's some larger issue later in life, right? That people deal with as they age. Mistakes mm-hmm. tend to get bigger. I always want the people I love, and this that whole monster under the bed with the kid thing is really an analogy for our adult relationships and how not useful and trust eroding it is to try to convince somebody that they should not think or feel the way that they are currently thinking and feeling based on our perception that the problem isn't as big of a deal as they're making it out to be. And I want to leave my relationship partner with the idea that they're never alone in their suffering whether that's super minor about some relatively like insignificant issue at work that they're having, or whether it's some like more significant thing going on. I, I, I just always want the result of my exchange with the person that I've promised to love, mm-hmm. that they're never alone in like their battles. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm going to run away every time they feel bad, because it's too inconvenient or because I'm too proud if it was something that I did, you know, I'm too sort of like trying to protect my ego character, whatever it was that I was doing back then. Mm-hmm. It, it always communicates. I choose me over you. You don't matter enough to me. And I never want somebody to have that experience with me. I value the idea of trust, right? Above all things, safety and trust and relationships must exist. 
for our relationships to sustain, to thrive. And we don't destroy them by doing a bunch of overtly awful things most of the time. We destroy them in this really almost imperceptibly slow paper cut way. And yeah. that's what I want people to become mindful of and hypervigilant about is eliminating these little paper cut incidents in, in their lives. And then they'll never mm -hmm. find themselves in that we grew apart phase. This mm -hmm. is what I believe. Wonderful. This is really enlightening. How do you work with your clients? Is it all on Zoom? Yeah, do, yeah it looks yeah. It feels a lot like you and I right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. And couples are sitting next to one another while you're doing it. You do individual. I, yeah, I've almost I've worked like with a couple like twice, and when I okay. say worked with, I mean like one conversation each. I'm okay. pretty adamant about not trying to play couples counselor guy. Okay. Um, because well, I'm just the emotional part of all of this mm -hmm. is so critical. I think both people are decent, and right. I can I can identify with and empathize with both people. Mm -hmm. And the relationship conflict, I don't think anybody's doing anything wrong. And I don't like to say that to, I don't want to tell, let's just go with the standard, like what mm -hmm. I typically see. I don't want to tell the husband that he's being borderline abusive and neglectful mm -hmm. to his partner who's sitting right there. Right. And I don't want to tell her, I don't think he's doing anything bad. <laughs> and that I could, but, but I do tell him, I'm like, listen, I, I don't think you're bad or that you're doing anything bad. I, right. I don't think that's a useful way to think about it. I think right. a useful way to think about it is that the math result sometimes of what we do, we do things. Mm -hmm. The result of what we do can equal a negative experience, harm, pain, fear, sadness, anger for somebody else. It does not mean you're bad or that mm -hmm. you did a bad thing. It just means that um, example is offering a peanut butter cookie to somebody with a nut allergy. Mm -hmm. Does it make you bad? You're being kind and offering a cookie. But what if a parent tells you my child has a, a nut allergy that sends them to the hospital if they get even like a sliver like in their system? And then for the seventh time, I've offered mm -hmm. their child some snack or treat mm -hmm. when they were at my house that threatened their health because I keep like forgetting or opting out of accepting responsibility for that. Like that's what it looks like to like accidentally put people in danger or to accidentally harm someone else. And right. we get so busy defending our intentions or our character instead of saying like on the other side of the equal sign, there's a person that's experiencing right. something really bad. And I want to proactively do something about that. I want to prevent that in the future from ever happening again. And that, that was the huge change that I had to make like psychologically and emotionally in order to become I don't know who I am or what I am today. I don't want right. to pop myself on the back, but I'm yeah. infinitely more relationally skilled and, and like emotionally intelligent and aware than I used to be. And I am very proud of like that aspect of me. That's awesome. How can people find you? Um, my home on the internet is matthewfray.com. And do you have a favorite charity? Um, not necessarily. I, um, I have, there's like a local charity here in yeah. Northeast Ohio, where I live, that I okay. contribute to. Which one is it? We'll like... do a call out for you. On, oh, on okay. Well, it's called, Heaven. it's called, I don't want to, I, I don't want, it, it's religious, but I, I, I the, okay. the religious part of it's not part of it. It's called okay. Haven of Rest Ministries in Akron, okay. Ohio. And uh, I used to volunteer there a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's not the spiritual side of it that I advocate for. They do mm -hmm. really boots on the ground, meaningful work Okay. with the homeless population. And mm -hmm. um, particularly like in the winter when there's nowhere Wonderful. to go. And I, yeah, I've seen what it looks like to like 
love and serve and help like less fortunate people um, because, through the work that they do. So anyway, right, my personal connection yeah. to them all the time. I love that. Okay, There's good. a million amazing causes out there and I care about most of them. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for being on the podcast and for all your words of wisdom and most importantly, putting out there your experience so that other people can grow from it and uh, just really value it. Thank you. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Love on the Go. I hope you join us on our next episode. You can make sure to know when it is by following us wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed it, it'd be great if you left us a review. I'd appreciate it. In the meantime, to learn more about me and how my team can help you, visit carolinasmatchmaker.com. Until next time.